Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, where I speak with David Arnold about his post-apocalyptic sci-fi survival novel, The Electric Kingdom, and my podcast, Technology in Space, where I speak with Ben Pring about the future of the digital economy, including surveillance and defense issues of the digital world. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Tim Brady, author of Three Ordinary Girls, the remarkable story of three Dutch teenagers who became spies, saboteurs, Nazi assassins, and World War II heroes. Published by Citadel, February 23rd, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. So first, um, how did you get, I, I see you've written a, a number of World War II books. Um, how did you get into studying and writing World War II in general and then this specific book? Well, I, I have uh, specialized in, in writing history for a number of years now. Really got involved in it back in the 90s when I was working for a public television station in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. We've working in national productions, and uh, I was assigned to work with uh, on a project called Liberty, the American Revolution. It's a Ken Burns-style series that was trying to tell, and did tell the history of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. It appeared in uh, 1997 or 98, I can't recall. Uh, it, it won a Peabody Award. It was a great series to work on. Prior to that, I had uh, studied creative writing and writing freelance articles. Uh, I did, but I had been an undergraduate major in history and uh, working on this assignment kind of got me back involved in, in this study of history, applying it to my writing. And when I left that project, I started to uh, focus on writing history as a freelancer. So how did um, the idea for this particular book come from? Where did that arise from? Well, it began with an obituary. My agent sent me uh, the obituary for the youngest of the three women who were the subject of the primary subject of the book. Her name was Freddie Oversteven, and she died in 2018 in September. Uh, at the age of 92, and the uh, obituary appeared in the New York Times and Washington Post. My agents loaded me to story possibilities, and the obituary was, uh, to me, presented a, a great storyline that I'd never heard of. And three, she was a teenager, and her sister was both teenagers at the start of the war. And they had gotten involved in the, uh, the Dutch resistance when they were teenagers. And, and then the obituary had also said that they'd actually performed assassinations against Nazis and, and Dutch collaborators, which I knew, I knew enough about resistance movements to know that that was a very unusual circumstance, both as teenagers and as girls. Mm-hmm. Read a little further, I, I, I found out that they were hooked up with a well-known uh, Dutch resistance figure, uh, Ani Shah. Mm-hmm. 
the third of the trio of girls. You know, it just then blossomed into a book from there. Mm-hmm. But it's the publisher, the publisher, our wholesale, we just started working on it. So one of the things that struck me reading about the book, so, you know, simple acts of spying, um, you know, I could see teenage, teenagers doing that, but when you get to the point where they're actually blowing up, blowing up things and, and assassinating, um, grown, grown men, you know, officers, that, that's what really caught me. So, um, tell me a little more about how do you, uh, break up the book? You know, is it like their story before the war or is it all about their exploits during the war? Uh, it begins before the war, but uh, the, the uh, occupation of the Netherlands began in May 1940, as, uh, just in the great uh, German push to in, into Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, it's a lot of the war, it's mainly the war and and the epilogue too, because there's a very interesting post-war. Uh, experience to uh, to, to uh, their story, mm-hmm. but I too was interested in when I heard heard about the, uh, the details of what they did. I, I it, it struck me at first as unlikely, to be honest. You know, as, as someone who uh, who's, who's looked at stories uh, of uh, various types coming from the war, and some of them are are exaggerated, or they're, you know they're they, they offer more than, and, and they tend to offer a lot more sometimes than, than, than they deliver. Hmm. And, uh, this one, I, I discovered something as I researched, really offered the goods, uh, you know, and, and by that, I mean, these, uh, these, these exploits that you outlined were, were fact. They, they happened, and, and uh, uh, it, it was remarkable that these these young women were doing these things. Mm-hmm. It, it just struck me as, as uh, sort of gold research. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't want to. I don't want you to give anyway any any spoilers, so to speak. You know, any, any interesting things um, that you want readers to discover in the book. But uh, can you talk about? I'm curious how how alone were these three girls, or did they have how much support did they have from other resistance? Well, they they were part of a, a, a cell that operated in Harlem, and Harlem is a city just to the west of Amsterdam. It's about twenty minutes, twenty miles west of Amsterdam, towards the North Sea, and uh, they were recruited by. A cell leader, a, a resistance leader, who, who had little more experience. And I, I, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, that there were there were few people in, in the Netherlands at the time who had how would they experience in a resistance movement. So, so there were obviously elements of uh, amateurism in how they performed and, and what they did, mm-hmm. um, and they. They started to organize uh, as a small unit, and, and probably it, though the dates are sometimes imprecise, but sometime in the winter of 1941 and 42, they started to gather as a, a very small cell. 
mm-hmm. in Ireland, probably six or seven people in total who were part of it. And the, the unit in Harlem they were a part of was an extension of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. It was an offshoot of the, no, they, they never really fully aligned with the Communist Party. They, they left us in various stripes. I mean, they were ideological uh, compadres and, and uh, they, they organized uh, to do, they didn't know exactly what they were going to do because one of the biggest problems at the outset was that they had no weaponry. Mm. The, uh, when the Germans came in, one of the first things they did was collected all of the, any possible weapons in society that didn't have a lot of weapons to begin with. Mm. And so they, they, their resources were very limited. And, and uh, one of the things that they did when they set out as a resistance group was to collect the weapons and, and the primary source of weapons were the, uh, were, were the Germans and the occupying force. Mm. Were all armed and carried their weaponry on them. And uh, so it was an interesting set of circumstances that girls were set out to seduce uh, in, in, in the first instance of an assassination. Girls were set out to seduce a, a Nazi uh, or a, a German uh, soldier who, who was known to, to chase after Dutch girls in, in taverns in Harlem. Mm-hmm. They seduced them back to their hideout in, in, in Harlem, and, and uh, one of the men in the group then proceeded to take the only pistol that they had, which uh, was described by uh, one of the sisters as from the Stone Ages. Hmm. The, the story was that it had, it had actually belonged to some Dutch soldier who had served in what is now Indonesia, uh, who hid it from the Germans by burying it in his backyard. So yeah. it, it was lucky. Uh, it, it didn't misfire or backfire, yeah. but, but they, they actually assassinated this German, this German soldier and he took his uniform and took his weapon. And, and hmm. that, uh, you know, that later in the war, they started to get the weapons from, from allied sources and hmm. people who get weaponry into the Netherlands. Okay. I'm speaking with Tim Brady, author of Three Ordinary Girls. You can find more information about his work on his Amazon author page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar, my podcast, Military History Inside Out, and my webpage, warscholar.org, or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you want new technology, science, space, and space history books, check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, my podcast, Technology in Space, and my website, 
technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. Um, so at the time, was was school still conducted, or during the course of the occupation, were they all just they, at home? These these were working class girls. The, the the sisters were working class girls. They had really little formal education hmm. from the, from a very early age. They, their mother was an ardent communist, and 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 their uh, principal uh, life their lifestyle was built around the party. They, uh, you know, they, prior to the war, they were already enlisted by the mother into uh, passing out the flyers and newsletters and both communist papers and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they also were part of what was called the Red Eight, which was a, an association uh, founded by the Communist Party, which provided the uh, uh, Shelter for refugees from Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. So they they were taking into their homes in the mid thirties. They were taking uh, Jews and, and Nazi refugees from Germany. So they they were um, they were they were again ideologically they were they were serious and deep anti-fascists and anti-Nazis. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like then the mother, at least, uh, would have been involved as well in some of these activities. Well, she wasn't. She wasn't. She was. She. She was. Uh, uh, the, the girls were recruited by the, uh, the head of the local cell, hmm. specifically for their age, because of their age, and and because of because of their age, they were thought to be uh, more. Oh, so, uh, they, they could they, they could move around with more freedom than, than adults, and and they could they could uh, go smile at German soldiers as they were peddling their pipes around Harlem and not raise suspicions about what they were doing. So it was the it was the, the teenage girls that he wanted more than more than the mother. The mother was doing her own thing within. The, she 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 did a. She, she continued to, to put out these uh, these flyers, and she had her own uh, sort of printing materials. So she was she was doing her own thing, but she wasn't part of the the, uh, the, the violent activities that the girls. So even distributing the materials, though the mother was probably doing something that was illegal, per the oh. Nazis. It was not only illegal; it was extremely dangerous. Anything that was they were they were they were taking risks uh, in, in any activities they did, and and they only grew through the course of the war. You know, they, the, some of the the most dangerous work that they did was transporting uh, some of the, the Jewish refugees from one safe house to the next. You know, if you were, if you were caught on the street and you were a Jew. You would be you would be going to a concentration hmm. right along with the Jews themselves. Mm-hmm. So, what about um, the Germans? They must have been on edge. I mean, at some point, they must have um, been acutely aware of, of some danger out there. Um, did you find that they, they became aware of it? And they also the measures that the 
Germans took and, and uh, whenever whenever there was one of these assassinations or they were, the, the Dutch called them liquidities uh, liquidations uh, mm. uh, they, they, they were um, they would they would uh, the repercussions were harsh and extreme mm. and uh, you know they would uh, in, in, especially later in the war they would take um, a group of usual suspects to use the phrase from Casablanca mm. and, and call them out uh, in front of uh, parliaments or people wherever they were opted to, to perform these executions and they would shoot a half a dozen to 10 or 12 suspected people mm-hmm. and then go out and bury them in the towards the North Sea. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that uh, these girls probably lost um, a fair number of friends, either innocent people or people who were involved in activities. They did, and, and uh, without giving anything away, uh, we haven't talked much about um, the third member, Honey Shop. Uh, I, actually, I probably just gave something away, but because uh, Honey did not survive the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they lost the closest, they, they lost numerous characters. Mm-hmm. I, there are so many questions I could ask, but I feel like each one would just kind of give something else away in the book. Can you talk about any any themes or any any um, aspects of the book that you'd like to highlight that doesn't give something away? Oh, that's a, a question. I would I would say that uh, it, it's a theme that has always uh, moved me, and I think first steered me toward writing about World War II, and it's and it it, it has a personal relationship. My father was a veteran, and and uh, um, he he went off to uh, the South Pacific when he was twenty two years old, and and uh, he served on a LCI, which is a, it, it was a landing ship, came a rocket ship. But he was, he was, a, you know, he was, he was a college student, and but he, so he he was he, he went through that program at the University of Wisconsin, came out and was oh. given command of, a, of this L, LCI when, and, and I, I always was struck. This notion of the you know, farm kid in Wisconsin commanding a, a, a ship in, in the South Pacific at twenty-two age of twenty-two, and and it always it, and, and so I was you know by the time I reached that age I, I was just unbounded thinking man I that's something that I but mm-hmm. the, the theme was uh, the youth of war the, the expediency of of war demands that you throw young people into circumstances that are that you would think are, are so far beyond them that mm-hmm. you, it's astounding to think that they would be able to do that. Mm-hmm. When I heard about these teenage girls and their friend Hani Shah that doing the sorts of things that they were doing, once again, they, the, the girls would explain uh, later in life that they were able to do this. Uh, because they viewed themselves as soldiers. Mm-hmm. 
they were brutal thing. They did brutal things, and and uh, I, you know, you, you wonder about the psychological impact. They just fearful us that they endured, and they, you know, just like the terror that they would have endured. And you, you ask yourself, how could they do it? Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, like, you know, the soldier does what a soldier does. Mm-hmm. That's how they viewed themselves. I, when I understood that, I think I began to understand them a little better and how they could survive. They really they were, were committed to what they were doing, and they, did it because they they felt they had to do it to liberate their mm-hmm. yeah ROTC I think is were you thinking of ROTC before thank you yeah 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 I don't know <laughs> I didn't that, think... put that back in yeah yeah um I imagine uh when um after D-Day I guess what they were doing and again we don't have to go into details but I imagine their their activities sort of might have shifted in a way once um, D-Day was underway. Curiously enough, they got more severe. And it, was, it was a quirk of the, the, the circumstances of, of the, the Allied forces and the circumstances of, of what happened to the Netherlands after D-Day. Meaning that uh, you know looking at World War II history, the one uh, Major attempt to liberate the uh, Netherlands during the war, Margaret Garden effort, and they culminated in the famous battle at Arnhem, the bridge too far, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was a failure. So the, the Allies bypassed the Netherlands uh, during the war, which left the Netherlands, uh, particularly the area of the Netherlands that the girls were in, in, in North Holland. Mm-hmm. They, they were sort of left high and dry by the circumstances, and the, the Germans continued their occupation through uh, uh, from D-Day forward, and, and if anything, it became more severe because uh, the Germans started to uh, pick Holland, uh, the, the Netherlands dry of any 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 comets, any food, any uh, clothing, anything that they could use in, in Germany to uh, use to, to, for their own population, with the soldiers on the Eastern Front. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the worst, uh, worst winter of the war for, for the people of the Netherlands was winter uh, 44-45. All of this prompted the resistance activities to pick up even more. It was, it was a twofold by the end of the war. There was the, the, the urge, continued urge to get these people out of the Netherlands. And also by this time, there was a, a, a deep hatred and animosity both against the, the occupiers and anyone who assisted the occupiers. So they, 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 they were it was really a spade of liquidities against the, the collaborators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I recall reading, I think in the Eastern Front, I think the Germans were also doing that just 
taking as much material from the civilian population as they could to use, you know, for their soldiers and their citizens back in Germany, you know, just full scale raiding oh, yeah. of, of Europe. That was, you know, the, you, I, you alluded to uh, the um, explosives that the, the girls employed in, in cause of the resistance. They were trying, the one big assignment that they had was to knock out a train that was transporting the contents of a, uh, of a factory in North Holland from North Holland to Germany. Right? Mm. I not what they, they were making specifically. They, were, they loaded up a train and they were going on a bridge over the river in Harlem and, and, and girls were assigned to go out on the trestle-style bridge and blow it up. Mm. They, didn't, they weren't successful, but in that case, they, they did another another railroad bombing, mm. which was more successful a few months later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let me t- turn to um, the research you did uh for this book, um, what did you use to gather your information? I I used a couple secondary sources that were uh, central to the, the writing of the book. One was a memoir by Truce over Stephen, and the, uh, the second was a biography of Bonnie Shot by. Uh, Journalist on course. Both I had one of the difficulties of doing the story was all of my principal characters were past, along past. Mm. Started to research the book. Memoir offered me an opportunity to get a sense of voice and character of truth, and the, uh, the, the biography was collected in the seventies and. Mm included interviews with people who contemporaries of the girls during the war, all all of whom get deceased and, and yeah, I, I, I say all but I can't say absolutely mm-hmm. most of them. I confirm those with the contemporary accounts I I, I would uh, I, these stories were were shared by the sister is well into the, the, the 21st century. They were became subject of many interviews, documentaries in the 2000s. I quoted the documentaries, I quoted the interviews, confirmed uh, the, the stories from, from their more recent counsel. And um, they were documentaries were themselves an interesting form of research for me because I, I don't speak Dutch, but by the time I was getting out and looking at those documentaries, I, I grasped bits and pieces of Dutch phrasing and I knew the stories to begin with. So I would watch these documentaries and only a couple of which were transcribed into English, but uh, I and I would watch them as they related the stories from, from that I read elsewhere 
it was it was very interesting to just watch the documentaries, get the tenor of their voice, their gestures, the way they told, corresponded with each other as they were talking about these incidents. One was a, a German documentary where they were telling the story, and as as the story was being reenacted in the context of the documentary, it was very interesting to to hear them. It was a story that I knew early on research. And um, it's very interesting to hear them tell this pretty colorful tale. It was actually the story of how they first met the man who had recruited them for self it, it, it was just an interesting, illuminating way to, to do research. Someone. So were you able to, uh, did you visit um, the Netherlands or were you able to? Yeah, I spent, uh, I spent three weeks over there. The, the, the Netherlands have uh, is a, a national museum of uh, sort of a museum of war and remembrance, Holocaust remembrance, and that offered a, a lot of materials. And there's also a, a museum called the Verza, resistance, definitely for resistance. And so it's a dedicated uh, solely to resistance. Mm-hmm. And, and did they have? Much information on these these girls. Yeah, they were the, the girls are pretty well known figures. As uh, in, in Hani Shop in particular, is a, she has been the uh, the subject of um, extending way back into the mid sixties or fifties. She was the subject of a, a quite a famous novel published in the Netherlands called "Girl with the Red Hair." She had Hani had flaming red hair, and she was uh, known to and uh, by the Nazis as, as the girl with red hair. Mm. And uh, uh, so she, her story was quite well known. Uh, she was also the uh, subject of this biography that I read. Plus, uh, she was the subject of an early 80s movie. So it was big I'm speaking with Tim Brady, author of Three Ordinary Girls. You can find more information about his work on his Amazon author page. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar, my podcast, Military History Inside Out, and my webpage, warscholar.org, or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and nonfiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you want new technology, science, space, and space history books, check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, my podcast, Technology in Space, and my website, technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. What part of this research did you enjoy the most? Going to the Netherlands, you know, just getting a, a real feel. It was, again, you know, you, you do these things and, and uh, it, it doesn't tell you go there and uh, see the, the territory that you're 
imagine with a deeper sense of what their circumstances were. And Harlem is a is an old city. It's a medieval city, and, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Netherlands. But no. it's tightly packed, uh, uh, housing, cobblestone streets, and uh, of course the canals are on the present, and bicycles everywhere. They they spent uh, much of the story, much of the, the war pedaling around on the bicycles. The bicycles are ubiquitous in, in, in Netherlands. Mm. So, you, you know, you get a real sense of their circumstances and their surroundings. And it, it just, it was just a, a, a wonderful experience being mm. just walking around. I can imagine um, when they're doing their, their work that uh, I can imagine, you know, chival- chivalrous young Dutch men, you know, trying to either, you know, offer their help to them or maybe saying, no, no, don't do this. You know, this is, this is man's work. We'll, we'll take care of this. Was there anything like that? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that was, that was, uh, uh, I will say this with a little asterisk because especially with uh, the, the overstating sisters, that truth in particular, she she was sort of a uh, you know she comes off as a, a sort of a modern figure, someone who would refute that sort of help. But she was she was uh, they all that was part of their role. Their, their role was to to uh, to be the uh, looking for help, but using their their in that sort of in that they might have had. With, uh, with German soldiers or, or uh, Dutch police officers to, to make their way around the city and do what they wanted to do and cause resistance. Mm-hmm. So uh, how? So you say teenagers, but how old were they in say forty one? At the start of the war, uh, the younger of the sisters would have been fourteen, older sixteen. Connie Shop would have been twenty. 20. Okay. Okay. Uh, you can do the math and they uh, figure out that they were the youngest and sister was still in their teen, teen years at the end of the they were They were kids. They were, they were genuine kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, uh, and again, I don't want any spoilers here, but uh, what did you find that most surprised you in your research? Um, well, just actually. Uh, I, I, this is going to sound uh, small, but it was the, the, the bicycle work that they did. Uh, they, again, these, this, it, it's hard to uh, give us a sense of how important bicycle culture was to their work. They actually would uh, pedal around together, riding two to a bicycle, and do their their shooting in the back of. Uh, Baseball, just you know, just like that. Hmm. Plains Indians, American Plains Indians, uh, a point. You know, it was, it was, and they would practice shooting as they were riding their bicycles. And, and uh, you know, it, it struck me as as quite remarkable to think of teenage Dutch assassins 
riding their bicycles around and shooting at, uh, at German officers and Dutch policemen. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really quite quite remarkable to me to imagine the scenes and circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in a sense, you can't imagine anything less less harmful than than seeing a teen teenage girl yeah. riding in a bicycle and you, you know can, in the Netherlands. Flying and the you know the little anklet socks and and, uh, and and suddenly pulling out a pistol from an from an older purchased by the way expressly because it the pistol would fit neatly and not be shown in no large overcoat they they would be right so you know it, it, there was a deviousness in, in, in what they were doing too so mm -hmm. they, they were they were practicing. By the end of the war. Oh yeah, I imagine so. What question was most difficult? And again, no spoilers. But was there a question that was particularly difficult to research that you really had hoped to get an answer for and did, or maybe you still wish you understood? Well, you, you always want to know more about the inner workings of the people you people you writing. What did they? That they think about what they were doing, and again, the fact that they they were deceased by the time they uh, started my story, that it was impossible to know more those matters uh, mm -hmm. without without interview. If you you know if you looked at uh, virtually everything you could find, what they said or how they had expressed their story. Did find exactly what you were looking. It's it's the it, every, every time I do a, a narrative history, find this limitation for someone who, who began his writing career as a fiction writer was not uh, limited by, by by not knowing what character thought because you you're making up yourself. Right. It's it's hard that it, that when you're writing. Uh, story to to know that your limitation is what you can what you can confirm by what they've said so that's always a narrative history so i'm sure this research normally i ask you know what what emotionally moved you in your research and, and it seems like there's a lot that could have um and again without getting anything away is there any particular um event or situation that really struck you emotionally Either good or bad. There are some incidents that that, that, that you you're going to have to pick up the book and read it to to, to uh, because I think they'll move you in the same way that they move me. Mm -hmm. There and they are they they are incidents of of cruelty to to children and mm -hmm. cruelty to. Jewish refugees and just uh, uh, general brutal brutality and Nazi brutality uh, that, that that are color the book and color the existence of, uh, of these girls through the war and what they witnessed, and what they did. Mm -hmm. They they were they were moved by. I think I can say this safely. They were deeply moved by what they witnessed and, they, and how they responded to it is, I think, more explainable when you see what the 
they witnessed in description of what they witnessed. Mm-hmm. Their, their response, and, and as I suggested, the sometimes brutal nature of their response might be hard to explain. Again, when you're talking about young girls doing these things, unless and until you see what they witness in members of the Dutch community and members of the human community. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, did you feel that, how much were they motivated by their ideology versus the horrors that they saw and, and did seeing the horrors elevate their activities even more than when they I, started? I think the latter, I, you know, I think that they, their, their motivation at the outset was, uh, was these, it, it was, you know, whatever ideological motivation was, was, uh, was immediately exacerbated by they were witnessing from the, the German occupation of the Nazi regime. So it was, it was it's sort of indistinguishable, uh, even from the get-go, and it only escalated as threats. Mm-hmm. It just became deeper and more systemic. Mm-hmm. Their responses were more brutal. Yeah, and I guess the question I would wonder about is, that I wonder about is, um, you know, let's say the Germans had not been brutal. If they, if their occupation had been, you know, gentle and kind. And I, I know it'd be hard to imagine, you know, that sort of occupation. But, but had they been, had the occupation been gentle, would, would they have been able to, would resistance fighters like these girls have done less maybe, or might they have been less motivated to fight? I, it, you know, I, I'm afraid it's, that's impossible for me to say. Um, I, I would, if you're asking how how committed they were to a, a communist ideology, I I would say they, they were committed, but they 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 I, you know they were they were they were teenagers too. It was it was not that they it was not that they had um, a lifetime's experience. With, bitterness uh, towards any circumstance that, uh, that, they, that they they would rear as, as dedicated to a cause. And, you know, so you can, you can maybe extrapolate from that mm-hmm. responsibly. Okay. So apart from uh, sort of filling the historical gap, what, what do you hope this book will do for readers? I, I you know, the, my book... Was intended from the outset uh, for an American audience. I, I, I think that, that maybe maybe Dutch readers will find some interest in find some new material in it. But uh, I, I, I think that uh, I, I wanted to fill in a gap in, uh, for American history readers about the Dutch resistance. And it's like either, you know the standard uh, you know, Tale of uh, the Netherlands during the war is, is sort of a combination of Anne Frank and Corrie Ten Boom, and, and uh, you know, it's, it, it, uh, it's, it's one side of the Dutch war experience 
story, but but there this is another side and one that that is um, it's fairly well known in the Netherlands. It's well known in the Netherlands, but I don't think it's known in this country at all as or or as much as the, the story of the French resistance or other resistance stories in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to I, I wanted to illuminate that aspect of resistance history for this audience. Mm-hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book finished? And it sounds like publishing, publication-wise, it was. It seemed like it was pretty much good to go. Yeah, it was. I, um, yeah, I, I, I had a publisher from from, uh, from early on. I wrote a substantial proposal, and they bought the proposal completion stamp. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I didn't. I didn't have. The only problem with finishing it was that you always have time constraints and, mm. and uh, the pressure to finishing off to meet a publishing schedule. Mm-hmm. Did you so? Did did the fact that you had these previous works published on World War II did that? It sounds like that made it easier um, to get this proposal accepted, or is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I I've done. Uh, uh, four prior books that had uh, World War II subject matter, and uh, so I had that history. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what's your current writing project? Do you have one? I My current writing project is uh, non-existent. <laughs> I, I actually, I, you know, I'm always uh, kind of searching around for subjects, and uh, but, but there's nothing that I care to speak of right now simply because I, I haven't gone into depth on any subject. Mm-hmm. But would it be, can you say if it would be World War II as well, or could it be anything? I'd like to think it could be anything, but you, you know, when you, because I've written now on World War II, you tend to get a little bit pigeonholed in, in uh, when, you, when you come up with book, book ideas and, if, if I say to my agent, you know, I, I think I'd like to do something in a different phase of American history, for instance, or European history, he would say, well, that's going to make it a little more difficult unless it's a, it's a terrific idea that anyone is going to have. So hmm. you, you get, uh, I, as again, I, as a freelancer, this is my income. So it's, I have to be, always have to be aware of the market and what I'm doing. I don't have any, don't have a teaching income. I don't have any other source of income beyond my writings. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I have to be aware where, where I can sell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can people, do you have a website or social media where people can follow you? Uh, you, you know, you can, you can find a list of my books on, Amazon. I've got an author page on Amazon. Mm-hmm. The publisher has a, a page for the book, and uh, my other publishers, I, I, I Random House has a page for uh, a couple of my books. And, uh, and the first book I did was called Twelve Desperate Miles, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a story of a, of a ship that was involved with the invasion of North Africa. 
early stages of the war, November '42. Mm-hmm. The other book from Random House is a biography of uh, Ted Roosevelt Jr., the, right. the son of Theodore, mm-hmm. of course, a famous general during World War II. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's if. Uh... When you Google your name, of course, Google insists on putting Tom Brady at the top. You yeah, know. I know. I, who is that guy? I've, been, <laughs> I've had to deal with him now for years. I just, I don't know why he takes precedent over me in the, in the <laughs> Google verse. But, um, but de- definitely, yeah, your your books are popular on Amazon. You know, it shows uh, your ranking is good. Um, but it's Tim Brady for listeners. Tim Brady, T I M, not not Tom. Thank Brady. you. Yeah, thank you. That's how you can remember it, Tim. Tim Brady. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Oh, I think we've covered a lot of terror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, yeah. And uh, like I say, it's it ranks very well on, on Amazon, so I'd encourage um, everyone to pick this up and, and read about, like you say, a piece of World War II history I think a lot of people, uh, U.S. readers, are definitely not aware of in general. Um, yeah, so thanks for speaking with me. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah, thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Robert Fuller about the U.S. Army in France after D-Day bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want daily book suggestions for new military history and general American and world history, including true crime, please check out my YouTube channel, War Scholar, my podcast, Military History Inside Out, and my webpage, warscholar.org, or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you're looking for new fiction and non-fiction books on sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, film history, and more, please check out my YouTube channel, Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd, my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews, and my webpage, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you want new technology, science, space history, and space books, check out my YouTube channel, Spacewalks Money Talks, my podcast, Technology and Space, and my website, technologyandspace.com. Thank you for listening.